Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Turtle Box Audio, Costa Sunglasses, Florida Fishing Products, All Hands Vodka, and Orvis Fly Fishing. As a young guy who is relatively new to the outdoor industry, there are a few people that I look up to as much as Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt and Meat Eater. As an accomplished hunter, podcaster, and writer, there's less known about Mark's fishing side. And in this podcast, we dive into his lifelong love of the water. We also discuss the importance of fighting busyness, finding mentors, and how you can become a lifelong learner by simply staying curious. Mark shares a lot of great advice that he would have passed on to his younger self. And we discuss how children can help reinvigorate the simple things in the outdoors. Mark also gives some great tips for effective snacking and some behind the scenes inside of his book, That Wild Place. We hope that you enjoy our time together. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet and it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go and sometimes just that quiet space is is what we need and especially in this day and age you have a fly rod in your hand it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places you meet hopefully wonderful people and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure when the fish is coming that shot within a shot that timer starts beep 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 no one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up as you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? At? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Mark, thanks for uh, finally coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to dive into all this. We've been talking about it for a little while and a uh, big fan of what you do with Wired to Hunt and a uh, big fan of your book, That Wild Country. So looking forward to kind of diving into all that and hearing just a little bit more about the fishing side of you, which I think is uh, a little bit of a less known, explored part of your life. But thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, you're welcome, and, and thank you. I'm I'm excited to get to talk about that too, because as you said, uh, fishing is a big part of my life, but it's something I don't have as many outlets for. So this is uh, this is something I'm excited and and all about doing. Yeah, man. Before we dive into the biographical stuff, can you just give us a, a little bit of a quick rundown of what you got going on right now in Yellowstone? Well, we split our year uh, between our home in Michigan and my cabin out uh, in Idaho, which is just on the edge of the the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So we've been here a little over three months so far this year and just been doing a ton of fishing and boating and camping and hiking and as much of that kind of stuff as I can do with a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, uh, but <laughs> been able to been able to get after it pretty good considering. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun summer, been a very fishy summer, and uh, I'm starting to feel the blues of having to go back to the Midwest and leave these beautiful rivers back here. Man, I yeah, I totally understand it, and uh, I'm guessing the weather is uh, the weather is pretty pretty enjoyable this time of year. 
Oh, it's great. And especially the, the lack of humidity, right? You down in your neck of the woods and back when I'm in Michigan, it's just wet and sticky and gross. And out here, it's just crisp, clear, dry, and uh, it's a joy. Those nice, cool mornings, cool evenings, really, uh, really do like that. So I'll miss that too. We're down to our final week out here before I've got to go back. So just kind of trying to trying to savor it and getting a few last good times before it's back to cornfields and preparing for the other half of my life, which is which is the hunting side. Yeah, just sitting in a tree in a saddle. <laughs> a whole lot of that. <laughs> um, well, I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with kind of the hunting side of you with the Back 40 and Wired to Hunt and all the different kind of projects you've done with the Meat Eater crew. But for me, I'm kind of curious about your childhood and your upbringing and how you fell in love with the outdoors. And I'm curious too, for you, was it, was hunting something that you quickly grabbed hold of or was, was hunting something you found along the way later in life? Yeah, both hunting and fishing were instant for me. Uh, I think from the time I was, I don't know, a year or two old, something like that, I was probably in the woods, on the water. I went to our family deer camp. I think I was told the first time I was up there was three years old. I'm sure I was on the boat fishing at that same time too. So I've been doing it as long as I can remember. Um, You know, I've, I've had different ebbs and flows over those decades between what I spent the most time on and what I was the most obsessed with. Um, You know, I had a like a tournament bass fishing phase where I was really into that. I thought I was going to be a pro bass fisherman. (laughs) And then I got deep into hunting and fishing was, was kind of on the, on the back burner a little bit, still doing it, but not at the same level as the hunting. And then over the last decade or so, fishing has been rising back and now it's kind of neck and neck right there with my hunting obsession. So it's, it's been lifelong dabbled in a lot of different, types of hunting fishing and I've kind of found that I love it all. Yeah. For you, what, with all of the kind of ebbs and flows and dabbling through different phases, which I know is kind of a part of my life. And we've actually talked about this a little bit cause it's kind of funny because I, I had dabbled in hunting and landed more in fishing and you dabbled in fishing and landed more in hunting. But you know, I think that's a lot of people's experiences, especially if they have family or, or mentors who are committed to just giving them a lot of different experiences. But for you, why do you think you ended up kind of resting in hunting and that being the main thing? Uh, you know, it's a good question. And, and, and I've, I've wondered about that. Was it just like circumstances? Was it just kind of the luck of the draw that when I was coming out of college in that phase of life where you can really kind of set your path at that moment in my life, I was just a little bit more charged on hunting. Um, and, and maybe that's just, like I said, it might've just been luck that that's what happened. Um, if things had been a little bit different over the year, couple of years prior, it might've been the opposite. And I might've been just a little bit more charged about fishing. Maybe if I'd had a couple buddies in college who were really into fishing and I spent a little more time doing that, who knows, mm-hmm. maybe I would have become a fishing writer and blogger and podcaster. Um, and I, I, I even did actually start, uh, cause the whole hunting thing for me started with a website called wired to hunt. And that same year I did start a wired to fish website too. Um, and that just never went anywhere. And there ended up being another wired to fish website that I discovered later. And so just <laughs> left, left that one alone and, and 
continued down the hunting road. But yeah, you know, when I started it, it was the end of college and I was just on fire for deer hunting. That, that had always been like probably the biggest thing on the hunt. Absolutely was the biggest thing on the hunting side for me was deer. And so I was on fire for it and started that website and started just diving deeper and deeper and deeper into that world, especially since I had this kind of avenue to, to scratch that itch and to explore that topic. Um, I was working an internship in New York City and just dying, wishing I could be outdoors doing the stuff I love to do. And I decided, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this website where I can scratch this itch and talk about this thing I love. And that's how it started. And from there, it just went deeper and deeper and deeper um, into that world. And I kind of, I was naturally drawn to white-tailed deer. I loved that thing. That was my greatest passion. But I also recognized from like a communication standpoint and from a business standpoint, and just trying to build a brand that having a niche and really focusing on that niche would help me in the beginning. So I, I doubled down on really being focused on white-tailed deer. Even though there was other things I liked, I recognized that if I could speak really well to a narrow audience and, and kind of talk about the thing they really love the most and do it the best, that would that would be a great opportunity to connect with folks. Rather than trying to be everything to everyone, I was going to be the perfect thing to a smaller group. And and that really helped me get a get a foothold in this world. Yeah, I think that's kind of a constant battle. A lot of people, especially not just people who are involved in, in media and writing and television shows and podcasting, but just in general, kind of, I think this, this tension that people feel of like, do I want to be a generalist or do I want to be a specialist? But, and we've talked a little bit about that. And it's kind of interesting because like kids, they so naturally go with the ebbs and flows and they phase in and out of things and they, they love you know, they love bass fishing and then they love duck hunting and then they love whitetail. And it, there's kind of just a, a generalist spirit. It seems like a lot of kids have, like, it's very rare. I, I've met a few, but it's very rare. I feel like to find a kid who's in their teenage years and just really dialed into one thing and not just kind of floating. And obviously in order to be successful in media, you have to kind of pick a lane and, and kind of stick to it and develop that. But for you as an adult, when you think back to those years of just kind of ebbing and flowing around and wanting to be a big bass tournament guy with a, with a big Jersey with a hundred patches on it and <laughs> all that stuff. I mean, there's some sort of spirit in that though, that, you know, I think can be lost along the way. How has that looked for you trying to kind of become a specialist without losing that, that well-roundedness? Well, well, yeah. And, and I think I absolutely dealt with that where, you know, when I dove deep into whitetails, I, I really dedicated to my to my dedicated myself to that. I I started thinking based on things I'd heard from, from some influential people and just kind of the sense of the community that I was in was that you couldn't do anything else if you really wanted to, really wanted to be good at this thing when it came to whitetail deer hunting. If you were going to commit yourself to that, there was no room for anything else. And if you did, then you weren't really a whitetail guy, quote unquote. Um, so for many years, I felt guilty if I did anything else. I felt guilty if I, quote unquote, wasted time in these other things I liked because I wasn't fully into and fully doing everything I possibly could to help my deer hunting efforts. Um, but what I found, you know, over the last seven, eight years is that I need something different. I can't just do that. I need to still satisfy those generalist needs. I need to scratch other itches. I need balance in my life. 
So for me, what that has meant is, you know, on the backside of my hunting, I've always been into, you know, just being out in the wilderness, hiking, camping, exploring, boating, anything like that. So there's, there's that side of my recreational personality. But then the fishing thing has really ramped up over the last decade as kind of a counterforce to my deer hunting love because I, I put so much into deer hunting. And since that is now, you know, my career, right, I write about, I speak about, I film everything related to my deer hunting. I've needed to have a counterbalance that doesn't have those pressures and expectations tied to it. And so I have gotten really, really, really deep into fly fishing, obsessed with it, just as obsessed as I am with deer hunting, but I don't have all of those strings attached that I do when it comes to the hunting side. And at first I felt guilty about that. I felt guilty going and spending a day in the river. I felt guilty talking about it. I was like, no one wants to hear me talk about this. Nobody wants me to post about this. No one wants, you know, me wasting my days doing this instead of scouting or setting stands or whatever it was. Um, but eventually I, I've come to realize that I need that for me to be a good hunter for me to be a good person to be a good dad um, I need this this other side where I can just relish in the activity and and learn all these new things again and be uh, enveloped in this other world to fully re-energize for that other side which is my career um, so now I don't I don't feel guilty about fishing a ton anymore um, I, I need it to fully be me and it, I think it makes me better all the way around and regardless of if it makes me better or not it's just a damn good time so I'm gonna keep doing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know you talked about going into something and it being a counterbalance, but something that you had to learn. And kind of one of the things that I've always associated you with is just kind of being a lifelong learner. And we were talking earlier and I was just saying, you know, you, you might not be the person who reads the most outdoor books that I know, but you're definitely the person who shares the most about what you're reading that I personally know. And there's kind of this spirit, I think, that's always been wrapped up in hunting and fishing and the outdoor world of, you know, if you want to be successful and honestly, in certain circumstances, if you want to survive, you know, you have to be willing to learn. And a part of that piece is obviously um, what you read or nowadays with digital media, the podcast you listen to or educational shows or whatever. But I'm kind of curious to you, like what what advice do you give people who want to be lifelong learners and how do you do that well? Well, I, I 100% agree with you in just how important it is to keep that lifelong learning spirit, to never be satisfied, to never think you know it all. Um, I think, one, that is just a, a more interesting, exciting way to live. And then number two, I think it is like the golden goose, silver bullet to being good at anything is to constantly be growing. If you're not growing, you're dying, right? And I think that that is, that is just so important, whether it's if you're trying to be a better hunter or a better angler or a better businessman or woman, getting after it, studying, exploring new avenues, constantly trying to better yourself in different ways. It's, it, it's just the, it's the price of admission. You're not going to go anywhere if you're not willing to do that. And I do think that the key to it is just staying curious. 
you know, exploring your curiosities, not necessarily following the path that other people say you should follow, not necessarily doing what the rule book says, but just chasing your fancy. If there's something that intrigues you, go find a book, go find a podcast, go listen to an audiobook, dive down those wormholes. Um, I try to be pretty um, financially conservative in most of my life, but there's one thing that I will buy without any reservations, any time of day, anywhere, anyhow. If there's a book that I'm curious about, that I'm interested in, I will buy that guilt-free every time. That is the best money I can spend because that is, that is, that's an opportunity to learn. That's an opportunity to download someone's entire lifetime of lessons learned maybe or a story that might change the way you look at the world. Books in particular, for me at least, I think are are just paradigm shifting. They can absolutely change everything if you are willing to expose yourself to what's out there. And there's there's so much great stuff out there. So that is that's one investment I can make that is well worth the 10 or 15 or 20 dollars every single time. Even even in a book that I don't love that much, you're usually able to get a few things out of it that Maybe you learn you don't want to do, mm. or maybe you learn from in one way or another, and that $15 is a hell of a lot better spent than 15 bucks for a Big Mac, fries, and a Coke, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, um, high bar. High so, bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I think explore what makes you curious. Have fun with it. Dive deep into it. Another thing I found, though, is I don't feel guilty when I recognize something's not for me, because... At one point, I used to buy books, and if I bought a book and I got into it, I would feel obligated to finish it. Like, I spent 15 bucks on this thing, I got to finish it. And there'd be some that would just be an absolute slog, and I realized, man, this is not my cup of tea, or this is a drag, or this writer is just not connecting, whatever it was. And I would, you know, force myself to spend the next week or whatever, you know, investing my precious little time I have on that thing. Just out of that sense of guilt, mm. um, but at some point I realized that's just a, that's a waste of my time. If if you know time is my most valuable asset these days, which I think it is, right? It's something I can never get back. I'm raising a family. I'm pulled in a million directions. Um, work's time intensive. Family's time intensive. All the other things you need to do. Uh, why waste it on something that you already recognize is is not helping you achieve your goals or not scratching that itch or not helping you um, have some fun in your free time, whatever your goal is for that reading or for that media. Um, I now am much more willing to make a judgment call and say, all right, move on to the next. And I've got 20 other books on my list that I'd love to get into. If this one is obviously not going to do it for me, uh, I'm not going to feel bad about that. Same thing with a podcast, same thing with, you know, if I stumble on something on YouTube that I'm interested in or, a documentary, Netflix, whatever it is, um, I'm not beholden to it anymore. I'm in control of my time, not the piece of media that I stumbled upon. So that's another thing. I think that'll allow you to get through more important stuff. Um, get into something that makes you curious, but if you realize it's a bad fit, move on to the next thing. Keep exploring. There are an endless number of pieces of of reading material or whatever it is out there that, that like I said, could be could be life-changing. Don't waste any time finding that next great thing. Um, so those are, those are a few things that I keep in mind. And I think just it, the simple idea of staying curious 
is such a it's such a platitude. It's hard to make it tangible, um, but but it's kind of the whole thing. I, 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 part of it might just be a personality thing. Part of it might just be types of people are that way, and mm. some people aren't. Mm. But if there was some kind of magic button I could push that would help folks stay curious and stay interested and, and keep asking why, keep asking questions. Like when you hear something on the news, when you see something on TV, when you read through a magazine article and you're like, gosh, how does this guy keep on doing it? You know, ask why. And don't just ask why and then move on to, you know, watch another episode of Game of Thrones. Ask why and then do something about it. Mm. Dig in. Go down a wormhole in Google. Call up somebody of yours who does know more about this thing and ask them about what they think. Post a question on Facebook. See what your what your friends have to offer as far as opinions. There's so many ways now that you can explore what you're interested and curious about. Um, it's a shame not to do that. So, yeah. so I think that I think that's just a high level philosophy that I think can help folks in a lot of ways, and certainly can help them become a better angler or hunter. Yeah, I think that's that's really helpful and something that as somebody who's much earlier on in in my angling and hunting and all that I'm something I'm trying to adapt and bring into my own life and the interesting thing with books back to circle to books too is I've heard people talk about kind of media junk food where it's like it's maybe you know you you watch like a a one minute funny video of a guy back in his trailer and then you watch a two minute video of you know, bloopers and, and before, and not that there's not a place to have a little fun and laugh, but there's this sense of like in our world today, there's a lot of media being created. That's really short. It's for a short attention span. It didn't take a lot of work to put together. You don't actually have to know anything to, to really put it together. It's just kind of, you know, bikini shots and funny things. And, you know, and before you know it, your, your diet, your, your content diet is all media junk food versus a book that, you know, obviously there's bad books, but somebody's really got to put some time and and actually think things through and put words to paper. So that was some advice given to me too, is, is kind of back to what you were saying of like, you know, try to, try to really reach for, for good stuff because you're limited time and you're, you're only reading so much. I'm curious, like you'll, so you'll post, Hey, here's five books I've read. When you're reading books, you do them one at a time. Do you, do you bounce back and forth? Do you highlight, what does your reading look like? So my reading by default is usually pretty all over the place. I kind of approach reading like I'm sitting down in front of the TV and I'm going to pick what channel I want to watch on this given night or this morning or this day. I'll be in different moods at different times. So I usually have a number of different books that I'm kind of working through. Um, But I do, I, I have been trying to get better and I actually... And I don't know what to think about this, but since I started posting what books I read every month, which I started doing probably two years ago, two or three years ago, I started doing my every month, this is what I read. Ever since I did that, I have become a little bit more committed to like getting through a book. So if I'm bouncing through like five books at one time, I'll never finish anything. And and I guess the, the peer pressure of knowing that people want to see what I finished and want to hear what I have to say about it, that has kind of forced me to get a little bit more self-control and say, okay, just focus on this book this week and get it done. Um, and, and that's actually probably a good thing because before that I did have a tendency of, of having way too many books going and, and finishing them at a much slower rate. So having just a little bit of that, uh, 
that peer group around me that's also paying attention has focused me a little bit. Now, I still have that mood kind of influence on what I'm reading and when. Um, but, you know, I'd say on average, it's probably two books that I'm focused on in a given time. They'll be sitting on my nightstand and I'll be bouncing back and forth between those. Uh, I don't do any highlighting or note taking really. Um, the one thing I do have is I have a little physical notebook and then I also have a Google Doc where I will just take note of any quotes or little nuggets in a book that just really resonated with me or that I, you know, want to keep tabs on to possibly reference in a future article or, or a future book project or something like that. So anytime there's something that really hits me, I will try to take note of the page number for that book and, and put a little snippet of the quote in there so I can remember it. Um, that's the extent of my note taking. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's I, uh, a lot of people ask me how I read so much. And the, the real secret to that is that I just don't watch much TV or other media. Um, kind of back to what you said, I look at my media consumption as like a diet. And I try to minimize the junk food as much as possible. And I try to maximize, you know, that healthy stuff. And I look at a book as being as being so much more satisfying and better for me in the long run. So mm-hmm. back to that time being my most valuable asset, I'm... I'm relatively obsessive about how that time is used and I feel guilty if it's not being used in a good way. And I feel like reading a book is, is a good way to use that time. I'm going to grow. I'm going to learn something might change the way I look at the world, or I might pick up on some new idea, or I might learn something that'll help me be a better angler tomorrow. Um, you know, watching a comedy on Netflix or binge watching some new show on HBO or whatever, like it's fun in the moment, but it's, it's, almost never does it help me in the long run. Almost never do I feel a whole lot better the next day knowing I spent two hours watching that. So I, I mean, not that I don't ever watch TV and stuff, but I think it's a lot less than, than a lot of people I know. And that just, that gives me time to read. So at night, instead of like getting done with the work and getting done with housework and getting done with the kids, I don't sit down and watch four hours of a show. Um, I'll go to bed at 10 o'clock and read for two hours. Um, Mm -hmm. And every night I read. That's that's like non-negotiable. I've got a, a book always next to my bed and a headlamp because my wife would be pissed if I'm sitting there with a bright light on. So <laughs> I read with a red headlamp every night so that she doesn't get annoyed with the with the bright lights. That sounds like a, a good sponsor plug. That's going to be uh, the next yeah. uh, headlamp ad is just going to be Mark Kenyon in a bed reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get a hold of Black Diamond on that one. Yeah. <laughs> But um, another aspect of that before, because I do want to talk about your book too, but I think on being a lifelong learner and just kind of an area I wanted to pick your brain in, there's obviously also just this, the age old tradition of being around the people who have come before you and finding mentors and peers who help shape you. And one of the, the cool things about working in the outdoor media world is you get a chance to travel and be around a lot of great, great hunters and a lot of great anglers. And so I'm kind of curious what advice you would give people too on how do you maximize your relationships and try to bring good people into your life to help you improve and grow? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very important aspect of all of this, but I do think it's one of those things that's easier said than done in most cases, um, especially these days with so much of our world being lived virtually. Um, There there aren't as many in-person opportunities as there used to be. Uh, But I will tell you, I mean, 
one of the biggest things for me in my career was just going to real physical conventions and events and just having that opportunity to meet people in your world, Mm -hmm. meet the people that inspire you, meet the people that you want to learn from and get that face-to-face time. Because no matter what, a face-to-face handshake or sharing a beer or something like that is always more impactful than a email or a mm. Instagram DM or whatever. And even if you just get a brief, Hey, hello, how you doing? Nice to meet you. You know, if you have that, then the message you send them the next day or the next week is so much more likely to land. Um, if you have that. So taking advantage of in-person opportunities whenever possible to meet folks, whether they be people in your work world, or even if you're just a hunter or an angler and you want to meet more like-minded people, and, you know, grow your circle of hunting and fishing buddies and grow your circle of people you can learn from. I mean, getting involved in conservation organizations is a great way to do that because there's no better way to get connected with people that love the same stuff you do than going to a TU meeting or going to a backcountry hunters and anglers meeting or a pint night or whatever it is and being there with 30 or 40 or 100 people that also love to hunt or to fish or to get back into the backcountry. And, and not only do they love the same thing you do, but they're also are the kind of people that are willing to work for those things. And at least in my book, that is an even more exciting quality in a buddy or a mentor. So I try as best as possible to still get out and be a part of those things and connect with folks because, you know, the old saying is that you are, uh, I don't know how the line goes, but you're, you're, you are the combination of the five people you spend the most time around, right? Like those people do influence you and the person you become and and to some degree the success you have. So Mm. I also say, you know, whether it's in your career or just hunting and fishing, it it can't hurt to reach out to people, Mm -hmm. seek out folks and, and ask questions. I mean, again, back to being curious, back to asking why, um, you know, trying to connect with other people and learn from them is never a bad thing to do. You just got to figure out the right way to do it. And Mm -hmm. I think one thing to think about these days, especially with folks who are in the public eye in one way or another, is that they're getting a million inbound requests, right? I mean, I get Mm -hmm. thousands of emails and messages and notes and tweets and stuff asking, Hey, how do you do what you do? Or how can I do this? Or here's my property. How can I hunt it? Or how can I have your job? Or how can I do this? And you get so many of those. There's, there's only so many you can answer. And a lot of people kind of ask for stuff in a way, uh, like, like demand things of people, not realizing mm-hmm. that the person they're asking stuff of has their own life and their own million obligations there. And so many other things going on too. Right. So something I learned that was that has been helpful to me is that if you are trying to reach out to someone who is in you know in the public space in some way who's got a lot of obligations who's getting a lot of folks reaching out to them is rather than taking a hey do this for me kind of approach like hey like let's say for example well, I'll give you an example how about I just give you an example that I think illustrates this mm-hmm. so I don't know like a decade ago I'm running Wired to Hunt, my website. I'm writing for magazines. I'm doing all this kind of stuff. But I really uh, am, am wanting to keep learning and go places and, and try to take this into the next level. And, and someone who I was really inspired by and who I've been learning a lot from from afar was a guy named Steve Ranella. 
And Steve Rinella, of course, was the host of this show at the time called Meat Eater. He'd written several really great books, um, already had, you know, done a lot of things, was already very busy, um, had a lot going on. And I wanted to somehow try to reach out to him and connect with him. But I knew that there were millions of people that wanted to connect with him and he was being pulled in a million directions. And so I thought rather than me emailing him or calling him or something and saying, hey, teach me what you do, um, rather than asking him to do something for me, I reached out to him and offered to do something for him. Mm. So I, I can't remember how I got his email, but I sent him an email and said, hey, Steve, love what you do. Um, this is who I am. Here's a, a one, two, three of what I do and what I've done so far. And I basically said, I think you would be a tremendous podcast host. I've heard you on the Joe Rogan show. Uh, I actually run one of the most successful deer hunting podcasts right now. I know how to do it. I'd love to volunteer my time to help you start a podcast mm -hmm. if that's something you're interested in. Um, and making that offer, like a qualified offer, and didn't ask for anything from him, um, that opened the door for us to have a conversation and to establish a relationship. And in a relationship that, you know, down the road, after that door was opened, led to him certainly helping me in many ways and me being a part of his company and now being colleagues. Um, I think if I had just emailed him and said, hey, uh, can you talk to me on the phone for an hour and tell me everything you did to become a successful author, uh, that wouldn't have gotten a response. That wouldn't have gotten anything. Uh, but I think by taking a, hey, what can I, how can I help other people approach? I think that's going to, in the long run, help you more. And so that can be applicable in business. That could be applicable as an angler. You know, if there's a guy, I, there's some angler out there who I'd love to learn more about how he's so great at streamer fishing. You know, I could bug him with a bunch of questions and maybe this person will be super generous and be willing to help as much as possible. But maybe there's a way I can help him first. And establish a relationship that way, mm. which then will result in, you know, something down the road that I might find useful to. And, and in, in the long run, it's those relationships. Relationships are really what lead to mentorships, which lead to learning opportunities, which learn to career opportunities, all that kind of stuff. So if you can focus on meeting people, being a good person, helping other folks out, you know, the, I, I'm a big believer in you know, helping other people. And that in the long run, that's going to come back around and it always has. So I think that's a great way to, to, to kind of grow your circle of folks who can help influence you, who can help mentor you and who can help you in your hunting and fishing journey or your career journey. Surround yourself with folks who are doing interesting things, who are smarter than you, who are more experienced than you, but don't just attach yourself like a leech. Be whatever the opposite of a leech is. I don't know what that is right now, but be something that is uh, providing to that group in some kind of way. And you will eventually enjoy the trickle down effects. No, I think that's, that's incredibly helpful. Um, and a lot of, I think a lot of people can really take that and apply that to whether it's hunting or fishing or business, like you talked about. I think that's, I think that's great advice. And, um, I know for me as somebody very early on in this, this journey, I've definitely, benefited, you know, extremely from the people who have kind of brought me in and helped me come along the way. And, um, I think that's great advice, man. I really appreciate you for, for sharing that. And, uh, even on like the people and the books and that type of thing, uh, my pastor had a guy when he was in college, tell him the biggest difference between where you are today and where you'll be in 10 years is the people you meet, the books you read and the places you go. 
Yeah. And uh, I think I think that that's um, that's really helpful for. So thanks for sharing that. I'd love to talk a little bit about that wild country. Uh, I yeah. read it last year. I actually listened to the audio book, um, and uh, I really enjoyed. It. I got a couple quotes I'd love to to just kind of dive into. Um, sure. And uh, the first one is I, I, well, one I think you do a great job kind of telling a story, and as you're reading it, you're getting a bunch of information, but you don't you don't feel like you're you're sitting in a, a lecture. You feel like you're just listening to somebody share their lived experience and kind of tie it to different lessons along the way. But I got a quote. I want to read it and then kind of get you to elaborate a little bit more on it for me, if, if that's cool with you. Yeah, sounds great. Here's a quote. Far from the luxuries of home, camp life forces a slower, more thoughtful approach to living. Mornings are savored. Coffee is sipped rather than drained. Making meals is less of a choice and more of an event. An evening stroll replaces the nightly TV hypnosis. In short, for a few fleeting days, we are briefly, blissfully, beautifully human again. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that and kind of in how that really ties to what you do with camping, hunting, and fishing? Oh, yeah. Well, I feel like that's that's the whole thing. I mean, regular daily life is chaos in so many ways. If you were to ask anyone, how are you doing today? These days, seven, eight, nine out of 10 people will probably, they won't respond, I'm doing great. They won't respond, oh, I'm doing fine. They'll probably say, oh, busy, busy, mm. busy, busy. Life's real busy, <laughs> yeah. um, right? Some version of that. Everyone is so damn busy. Even if you're not busy compared to other people, I think you make yourself feel busy. That's just kind of the world we're in now. Um, some people more than others, but I think everything now is, is a race. We're racing to get more done. We're racing to get to the next rung on the career ladder. We're racing to the next great big achievement. We're racing to the grocery store and you lose so much of the lived experience when that is the case. And I, I'm saying this from experience because I am guilty of this. The only place in my life though where I am able to slow that down and remove myself from that whirlwind is when I am outside whether it's mm. hunting or fishing or camping or hiking floating down the river when you remove yourself from the trappings of modern day civilization and you step out into the real world you become and the longer you get out there, the deeper you go, I think the greater this effect is. But you mm. become part of this natural world that moves at a different pace, that tastes and feels and sounds and smells different. And for me, it is the greatest therapy in the world. Um, there's nothing like it, and I need it. I, I, I absolutely, I would die without it. Um, there was this amazing quote um, getting off of the camping thing, but it's a fishing quote, but I think it applies to hunting and fishing in the outdoors. John Gierak, you know, just one of my absolute favorite writers, um, was writing in, I think, his book, the At the Grave of the Unknown Fisherman, and he said something along the lines of, I know that fishing saved... No, shoot. He says, I don't know why I love fishing, period. Well, rather, I know that fishing saves my life. I just don't know why it saves my life. Hmm. And I would take out fishing and also insert hunting or the outdoors or any version of these outdoor pursuits. It saves my life. 
and I'm not exactly sure how or why, but for some combination of what I was just speaking about, the fact that it takes you out of this madness, the fact that it reinserts you to the most real thing out there, which is the natural world that we came from, um, I think that just recenters you. It can it can calm you. It can focus you again on what matters. It can expose you to so much in the natural world that can inspire awe and not only do I say this from a personal experience, but actually now a whole host of scientific studies are finding that being in the outdoors and slowing down and camping or hunting or fishing, these things have real measurable, quantifiable, physiological and psychological positive impacts. Like hmm. folks now are prescribing the outdoors. Doctors are writing prescriptions to go and spend a certain number of hours outside because this stuff is making such a positive impact that's improving your physical health. Um, so, so this is a very long-winded way of saying that, yeah, when I get outside and I can camp for a few days or I can hike for a few days or I can fish for six hours or whatever it is, it can remove you from the chaos. It can remove you from whatever ails you. And I think this is not news to anyone who does this stuff, right? I'm sure you can relate. Everyone can relate to this because it's the truest of true things. Yeah. That's why we love these things. And that's why for those of us that have been lucky enough to be exposed to them and lucky enough to have the opportunity to go to these places or get outside and do these things, uh, I think we're the luckiest people in the world. And we're, um, we're reaping the benefits because of it. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a book I read last year, Last Child in the Woods, that talks about nature deficit disorder, which is yeah. his term, the author's term. I'm guessing you probably read that book. Um, uh, yeah, I'm familiar but, with it. I actually haven't read it, but yeah, it's the, uh, what's it called, Last Child yeah, in the Woods? You said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, N nature deficit disorder. One of the things that's interesting, like I, I sent you a video the other day of some uh, redfish crawling in some grass, and there's an interesting thing about if I, so I live close to the coast, so if I hop in my skiff and I run somewhere and I just quickly immerse into out the outdoors, I'm always, there's a huge contrast between how I've been that day and how slow nature tends to work. So I'm sitting there thinking, gosh, this redfish is taking forever to move over here because because I've just jumped right in it what's interesting is like when you're a couple days into a trip how you're kind of the metronome your your inner metronome slows down a little bit and it doesn't stand out as as much contrast because you know you might yeah. watch a deer I mean obviously sometimes deer move really quick but you might watch a deer just freaking take its time moving across a field because they don't have the same stressors and calendars and busyness and all of that so it is kind of interesting just to think about too the pace of nature and how you know it seems like our society is faster 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 you know whereas you know that redfish cruising down a bank is crawling at the same speed it probably crawled at 500 years ago you know yeah it's yeah. kind of an it's, interesting uh... interesting contrast so true. There's actually, um, back to some of these studies, there has been something that's referred to now as the three-day effect. Uh, basically, that researchers have now found that after about three days in the wild, in some kind of relative backcountry or outdoor setting, um, after about three days, the internal clock in your psychological 
you know, well-being resets mm. in a certain way. Basically, to what you said, is that your your tempo finally lines up with the natural mm. world around you. And it's around that three-day mark, give or take, uh. where most people seem to hit it. And there's a whole slew of kind of multiplier effects as far as like the positive good of outdoor time. It, it really jumps up to another level once you've been immersed that long. That's, mm. It seems to be the sweet spot to, to kind of shed off all the chaos and to fully be kind of integrated into what's around you. So that's mm. a case right there for um, every once in a while taking a little extra vacation time and giving yourself that week back in there somewhere. Um, so you can fully release uh, all the tensions that have been lingering from the real world. Well, who needs vacation time when you can apparently get a doctor's note? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Very true. Bring that bad boy into work. Hey, uh, yes. I need a three-day float trip. I got another mm-hmm. quote that I think is is connected to it, but I wanted since I have you here, I want to get I want to get the Mark Kenyon explanation. Just kind of deep dive into it a little further. Um, yeah. So the quote is, one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Could you just kind of go a little further into that? Yeah, so that is a quote from Elder Leopold. And it is a, a quote, well, first off, Elder Leopold is a person who has influenced me and, and many, many, many others within the world of conservation and the outdoors. Uh, but Eldo. Yeah, I wrote about him in this book. He has this mm. tremendous history and this tremendous influence on uh, wildlife management and on public land protections and conservation in this country. But he really was, um, in a lot of ways, one of like the spiritual forefathers of the conservation movement. His his book, A Sand County Almanac, is one of the most... Uh, how to describe it? J- just one of the most profound documents exploring mm-hmm. the philosophy of conservation and 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 really what it means and, and how we might be able to do it. Um, it's it's a book that anyone who cares about wild animals or wild places has to read. You have to read a San County Almanac. But this this line which he stated, which is basically to to kind of dumb it down a little bit, the more you pay attention to the natural world, the more you fall in love with hunting and fishing and animals and fish and wild places, the more you get into that, the more your eyes become opened to how in danger these things are and to how mm. damaged they are becoming. And and that I think was true at Elda Leopold's, you know, in his time back in the, you know, thirties and forties and fifties. And it's just as true today as we continue to you know, to to see environmental degradation and so many different things being chipped away at and lost um, if you're paying attention. But if you are not paying attention and 97% of folks are not, right? They're, they've got other things going on in their life. They're worried about their job. They're worried about their TikTok. They're worried about mm. Kim Kardashian. They're worried about whatever. Um, they have no idea that, you know, for example, we have lost 1 billion acres of forest habitat across the world in the last 20 or so years. One billion acres. That is about as much land that is in forest in the lower 48 states right now. Can you imagine if we lost all of the forest in the lower 48 right now? Mm -hmm. That's what we've lost in the last 20 years. Nobody knows that. 
Uh, what about grasslands? These are just some recent things I looked at, so it's kind of top of mind for me right now. But we've lost, gosh, I think it is 50 million acres of grasslands across America in the last just over a decade. Just gone. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing is happening in so many different worlds. It's happening in so many different avenues. And, you know, it's been true in my own personal life that as I've dove deeper and deeper into these things, as I've gotten more and more into hunting and fishing in the outdoors, you naturally, at some point, I think most of us have a realization like, oh, wow, this stuff is so amazing. How do I make sure it stays amazing? Or maybe you become finally aware of some kind of issue. Maybe it'll be some local thing where all of a sudden your favorite fishing hole, you show up one day and there was an oil spill and all the fish are dead. Or you show up one day and your favorite hunting spot just got clear cut. Or there's a housing development there. Maybe it's a personal thing like that. But in one way or another, most of us, as you get deeper into these things, you'll eventually have some kind of eye-opening moment where you realize that these incredible natural gifts aren't guaranteed. And I think once that veil is lifted, it becomes really hard to ever get out there again without realizing that. And the more you dive into it, the more you're going to see. And I certainly have, um, you know, had this change in my life where now I, I'm constantly confronted with the many ways that the things that I love and cherish so much are in danger, are threatened. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, that's the penalty, right? Now my eyes have been opened to this And then with that comes the obligation, which is, okay, I love this stuff. That's part number one. Part number two is now I finally realize that this stuff's in danger, and it always will be because there's always going to be these pressures from all around, from development, from human-caused climate change, from whatever it is. There's a million ways that we are impacting the natural world. So they're in danger. So then finally step three is realizing that, you know, if I'm going to love this stuff, if I'm going to enjoy this stuff and use this stuff, it is there is an obligation to now try to, in some way, find some way to, to, to halt the damage, to slow the damage, to, to patch the wound, to help in some way, so that this, this wonderful thing we have is still here for the next generation or for the next weekend. Hmm. I think just to even tie it back to your Leopold quote, you know, we're having a lot of water quality fights statewide. And then even locally where I live, Wakulla County, which is 70% state and federal land, um, public land down here, you know, we're having these ridiculous fights, having to make cases for things concerning our water quality with wanting to put gas stations, certain places or spray fields over highly porous fields or just a bunch of stuff. You know, there's this correlation about how politicians have so much power and they have so little connection to the natural world. And, you know, just a, just kind of something to think about even in our state with a lot of the, the conservation efforts we have down here in Florida with Captains for Clean Water and um, different groups across the, the southeast. It's, it's very evident that there's a need for people to share the experiences of the natural world and invite people into the natural world in, in order to show them, hey, this is what we're trying to protect. These are the woods. These are the public lands. These are the these are. This is what it means for our community. A mile down the road from me is the Wakulla Springs, uh, the river that Wakulla Springs feeds into, 
where every kid that lives in this zone jumps off this bridge and swims and plays in this crystal clear, clean water and trying to help make connection with people who make policies. I think just thinking about the need for, for us to immerse ourselves in it is, is really important. I want to transition into uh, some rapid fire questions. If that's good with you, I got a, a kind of fun yeah. list here. Um, Let's do it. But I really appreciate you just kind of elaborating. I, re- I highly recommend people check out that wild country. Um, really great storytelling, really great case for public lands and our need to protect them. So thank you for writing and, and chatting with me about it. Well, I already got a pleasure. couple. So in looking back at your, your outdoor life and journey, do you feel like there's a biggest mistake that stands out to you that you've made? Oh boy. There have been a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind though is not so much like a tactical error that I made sometime on a hunting trip or a fishing trip, but it's actually how I utilized my time in college. So I, I frequently looked back on my college years with regret because that at the time I never realized how much freedom I had. I never realized how much time I had that I could have gone and done some wild, incredible, amazing adventures. Instead, I was focused on girls and partying and football and that kind of stuff when I really could have gone on some unreal trips to Alaska. I could have spent the summer in Alaska. I could have traveled down to Patagonia. I could have gone on a two-month hunting trip. I could have done all these things that you just can't do or it's really hard to do once you're older and have a full-time career and family and kids and all that stuff. So I unfortunately got sucked into the the culture of Big Ten College and all that and uh, didn't get outside as much as I wish I had. <laughs> And uh, that is, that's probably the biggest regret I had because I imagine I could have made some unreal memories Mm. during those early 18, 19, 20 year old type uh, years that, uh, that I'll never get back. Did you at least uh, get a wife out of the deal? Did you meet your wife in college? (laughs) I did. I did get a wife out of the deal. So (laughs) that, that one was not a mistake. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, hopefully she's not listening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, You know, we talked a little bit about the well-rounded aspect of obviously like predominantly what you do is, is chasing whitetail, but you know, fishing, camping, hiking, all that. What's your least favorite outdoor activity? Oh man. Um, off the top of my head, it's ice fishing. (laughs) I, I love fishing and I really love fly fishing, but ice fishing is something I grew up doing with my family and I still have friends that are into it now, and they're always inviting me, and I just cannot get into ice fishing. It just is so damn boring. Uh, it's it's just not my cup of tea. So I've, I will go out yeah. every once in a while and like just go there to BS with buddies if I have a, a free morning or something, but I I can't get excited about it. Yeah, I'm a Florida guy, so you know I'm like a fifth generation Floridian. So I just always assumed ice fishing was just an excuse that people use to go and drink with their buddies. Is that right? I'm. I think it mostly still is. <laughs> yeah. It looks like you know, like four dudes sitting around a small hole, you know, just shooting the bowl and drinking is kind of what it because it doesn't look. I'm sure people geek out on all the gear and everything, but <laughs> it looks yeah. pretty low energy. Um, yep, agreed. Uh, so in, with kind of like fishing in mind over, over the years, traveling and going to different state parks and doing stuff, I'm curious what your favorite fishing trip has been. 
Hmm. You know, there's been a lot that have been incredible, but probably my favorite because of the entire experience of it was one that I wrote about in that wild country. I did a pack rafting trip uh, down a river up in northern Montana, and so it was kind of a combination of everything I like. It was a backpacking trip, it was a camping trip, it was a rafting trip, and it was fishing. Um, And we did all of those things without anybody else around except for my one other buddy. So we had a lot of solitude. We're in a really wild place and um, got to experience the natural world in in all aspects and catch a ton of fish. So that was was a great, great fishing trip. Hmm. One of the things that you do that I really enjoy is you'll kind of do a play-by-play story on Instagram. This is like a... To me, this is a this is a nice grilled chicken with brown rice and broccoli in a world of social media junk food. You'll do these kind of play by plays <laughs> of like, okay, I set up here. This is what I thought the deer were gonna do. You'd like draw little arrows and stuff. I'm curious when when you're hunting and you're fishing and you're kind of trying to learn and take note. Do you have a system that you use personally for? trying to write down things you observed or or changes that you need to make for the next time you go to a property or during a certain season what does your note taking look like personally it's not as good as i wish it was to be honest with you um i have tried for years to start and stick to a hunting journal where i would Mm -hmm. log you know each sit and, and I've done it off and on. And when I did it well, I was always glad that I did it. I would mark, you know, what the location was that I was hunting, um, what the setup was, you know, why was I sitting there? I would, you know, take note of the weather and the wind direction and various conditions. And then I would log, you know, what my sightings were, what happened, what went right, what went wrong. And it was such a useful resource to look back on the following year and think, oh, yeah, okay, so this is what was going on on October 15th last year. I wonder if something similar will happen this year. Um, But inevitably, I've always fallen off with it. I've always just lost momentum and got too busy and stopped stopped doing it. Um, But what I have ended up doing on the fishing side is, you know, like as I mentioned, we, we split our year. We live out of our cabin out in Idaho. And I started a log three years ago out here documenting every time we do any kind of outdoor activity. So every camping trip, every hike, every fishing trip, um, every hunt, I log in this journal. And I write, you know, just basically write the same kind of stuff, where we went, what we were doing, the the kind of details and highlights of the day. Um, If I'm fishing, I'll take note of, you know, what I caught fish on, how many fish I caught, where they were, anything like that. And for whatever reason, I have been able to stick to that here. And so now I have three years, and I can look back on this really detailed, really fun kind of way to relive these moments. And it's actually been helping me from a fishing perspective. Because this year I've been thinking, okay, you know, when can I go to this river? When's runoff down? When were the fish, you know, actually looking up? And I was sitting there, and in past years I would have just had to make guesses. But now I can go back and say, okay, well, let's look what happened last year. I remember it was a great day of fishing on X River on June 28th. 
let me look back on that. And then I'll see, okay, June 28th last year or two years ago, the fishing was great on this river. So the river must have been low enough by then. And then I can actually go back and look in historical data records and see what the CFS was for the river and see what the flow was. And then I can say, okay, well, it was fishing great at 10,000 feet per second. And now I can look and see what it is today. And so that has rekindled in me a dedication to journaling that I'm going to pick up again this year with hunting. And I'm just going to find a way to stick with it because I do think it's, it's so helpful. I got to get better at it on the hunting side as well because the fishing side has illustrated it for me in a big way. And it's just, it's fun to get to go back and read those things. Every once in a while, just open up the journal and look back on something. And these moments are so, these outdoor moments can be so fleeting they can, they can be here and gone so fast mm. that any way that you can just bring yourself back to those, those days or those minutes out there where you have this great experience, whether that be by reading a journal entry or looking back on a picture, um, that's the good stuff right there. Mm. We got we to gotta savor every one of these moments because we never get enough, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm all about trying to help capture and eternalize those kinds of things. So... My note taking and journaling is uh, is only going to increase from here. Mm. No, I think it's good. Um, you had mentioned you have a two and a four year old. I have a two year old and a six year old, so I'm basically an expert at this point um, <laughs> with all my. But uh, I'm I'm curious for you, how has being a father changed the way that you pursue the different things you do in the outdoors? Well, it certainly has changed everything. Um, it's 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 twofold, I guess. It, it changes, well, three different ways come to mind immediately. Number one, it changes just your available time and how you prioritize things. So all of a sudden you have these other obligations that are the most important thing in your life now, right? Raising those kids is, is, is the thing and they demand a ton of time. So it all of a sudden just forces you to think through what you're going to do outside of that in a more careful manner. So if I'm going to leave the family to go do this thing, I better make sure I've got my, you know, my ducks in a row. I better make sure I'm using this time as best as possible. I better make sure that I'm not, um, you know, out there for too long. I better make sure that I'm balancing my time properly. I better make sure that I have this well thought through and that I know that I've got everything right at home before I do that. So I better make sure that my kids have everything they need, that my wife has the time she needs, that, that things are right at the house before I go taking off on one of these gallivants. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, it has also you know, forced me to slow down in so many ways and to temper my expectations in, in a lot. So, so much of what I do now, you know, 95% outside of, you know, hunting trips that I take for work and a few, you know, solo things I get to do fishing. 95% of my outside time now is the most domestic, tame, (laughs) uh, outdoor (laughs) kind of excursion you can imagine because I want my kids to be with me for as much as possible. Mm. So we, we spend a ton of time out in the mountains and the lakes and rivers of the Rocky mountains, but it's, you know, going to a river and we're going to spend two hours sitting there throwing rocks and floating leaves down the river or I'm going to be sitting there helping my four-year-old who is now obsessed with catching minnows and frogs and snakes with his net. And we'll spend an hour chasing minnows. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not climbing up to 
12,000 foot backcountry lakes. I'm not summiting any big mountains. I'm not, mm. uh, you know, doing those things as much anymore. There's a whole lot of walking one mile down the trail and climbing on every boulder. Uh, mm. it's that kind of thing. And at first, and it still sometimes is a struggle for me to slow down that kind of way and to adjust my expectations for the outdoors in that kind of way. But it's, it's been so good for me to have to slow down in that kind of way because I am naturally very goal oriented, very hard charging, very uh, achievement focused. And my kids have forced me to look at the outside in a different way to focus on and to enjoy the simple things and to enjoy their joy. Like seeing the outside through their eyes has been such a joy. Um, you know, my four-year-old now has has developed uh, a really contagious level of excitement for everything outside, and he he's he must be spending too much time around me because he's he's talking <laughs> like me now. He'll be walking down the trail and he'll be like, "Dad, this is magnificent. The mountain peaks are <laughs> breathtaking," and I'm just cracking up. Future writer, and yeah, it might be. So um, so just. Be they they've reinvigorated my excitement for the simple in the outdoor world. It's so easy to want to get this great big fish or to shoot the big buck or to chase this big epic journey, and uh, and kids have really helped me to enjoy the here, the now, the small. There's beauty in all of that, and that and the, my children have really really helped me appreciate that better. Um, there was a third thing in there somewhere, but I can't remember what it was now. <laughs> Well, I think that was the two things were good enough on their own. So we'll let you off the hook on the third thing. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Part two podcast to find out more. Um, yeah. My last one is, so I was watching your show and, and you revealed something that had a profound effect on my winter, uh, my winter outdoor activities, which was you put a hot pocket in a Yeti cup, which... <laughs> Um, I don't know, maybe that's a Northern thing, but I've never, I've seen people put soups, you know, in thermoses and stuff. But this to me was, this was groundbreaking snack technology right here. I, I'm curious, uh, what are your top go-to snacks? <laughs> well, I, I can't take credit for the hot pocket because that was actually my buddy who threw the hot pocket in the Yeti, oh. which was, which was smart. <laughs> that was Ben. Bad. And, oh uh, yeah. Bad, bad note taking on my point. And uh, he he definitely did take the snack in there to the next level. Um, I'm a pretty simple snack man most of the time. So even on like hunting trips like that. So that was like a November rut hunt where we are sitting in the tree for 13 hours straight in the freezing cold for seven days straight. And really you need to have a lot of food to get you through what's mostly a very monotonous, uh, still quiet freezing kind of boring experience and so on those days the key to snacking isn't necessarily what you bring the key to snacking on a day like that is how you divvy them out to yourself mm. so it's very easy to be tempted to eat a bunch right away you know the first time you get hungry and cold at 10 a.m in the morning you might just bomb through all your goodies but the trick to effective snacking if you're in a situation like that where you're stuck outside and you're not doing something that's consuming and exciting is that you need to pace your snacks throughout the day at a steady rate 
and then you can kind of line them up as a reward. So when I'm tree stand hunting, I will say, all right, you get your first snack at 10 a.m. And I will ch- I'm going to choose what it is. And then for the next hour, I'm just sitting there really excited that at 10 a.m. I get a little mini Snickers bar. And then I know, okay, no more snacks till 11. And then for another hour, I can sit there pleasantly looking forward to the idea that I've got an apple at 11 o'clock. And I will do that every single hour for the rest of the day. So like I have a little microdosing. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> right. You've got these you've got these little wins throughout each part of the day. And that can get you through a 13-hour tree stand sit or a 13-hour mountainside vigil while you're glassing for mule deer or whatever it is. Mm. Um, so that's a key thing. Uh, otherwise, you know, when I'm outside and I'm snacking, I like meat and cheese. It's just solid, good venison, summer sausage or jerky, some good cheeses. And, uh, man, on the boat, our favorite thing, we, we, I've got a drift boat and we'll float down these rivers of the family a lot. And our favorite thing now, rather than bringing a whole bunch of random snacks or making a great big dinner is we will just bring like a charcuterie, charcuterie, charcuterie I can never say the dang word. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, Meat and charcuterie. Cheese yeah, yeah, charcuterie. Yeah. Thank you. And so we'll bring a bunch of different sausages and prosciutto and different stuff like that. And then a whole slate of different types of cheese and some apples, some crackers. We'll slice it all up. I've got a really nice casting deck on the back of my boat. And so it's, it's like a perfect dinner table. And so we'll put a cutting board on there, lay out all those different foods, pull the boat off the side of the river, anchor up, and uh, you just get to sample all these different types of uh types of meats, cheeses, and crackers, and make your own adventure. It's a delicious waterside meal. The other day we were doing this, and we had a cow moose step out across the river and just eat willows 40 yards away the whole time we sat there and ate lunch. It was great. Yeah, it's like the uh, adult Lunchable, you know, but now the big thing is to put them in in your tackle box and to call it a snackle box. (laughs) I like that. Just something to think about, yeah. But, uh, man, I can't. I, I can't even I can't begin to ask you to give better content than your uh, microdosing snack kind of regimen. Um, <laughs> but man, I you know it's it's been really fun just to get a chance to talk with you. I've enjoyed enjoyed your book, enjoyed the different uh, writing and media that you put out there, man. I'm just grateful to be able to hang out and get a chance just to hear a little bit more about how you approach the outdoors and hear a little bit more about fishing uh, from you. So thanks for making some time and hanging out. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate it too. This is this is fun, and uh, and definitely have plans to um, to be doing more in the fishing world in the future. So hopefully, we'll have more fishing stories and stuff to talk about down the road someday. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective podcast. Help us out by sharing this podcast with your friends online and leaving us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. (laughs) I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.